that the last song? Are you guys? Okay. Okay. Very good. It was okay until we started singing. Excellent choice of songs. This morning, Jesus is all I need. Warren Wiersbe said, Jesus is all I need. But you'll never realize it until he's all you've got. And then he said, you'll realize he's all I need. Every time I see John, he says to tell you he loves you and to tell you he appreciates your prayers because he knows you are carrying him through. God is carrying him through. Amen? As uh, Mike said earlier, sometimes words are difficult to say in difficult times, but God's word is always proper. God's word is always right. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians this morning, chapter 2. 2 Corinthians, chapter 2. And we're going to read from that in a few moments, if I can get this light to light up. I said it's on the top. Maybe over here? There we go. Okay. The older I get, the worse my eyes get. Yeah. Are they reading glasses? Yeah, I'll use them. (laughs) Oh, that's perfect. All right. (laughs) I'll give them back to you later. (laughs) I was out to eat a while ago with a co-worker, and we were eating breakfast at McDonald's, not the best place to be, but um, he was having a breakfast burrito, and he said to me, you know, this burrito doesn't look anything like the picture in the advertisement. Pictures of food look perfect when they're on the picture, but when you actually get them on the plate, it's like, ah, I probably could have done without that. Remember the commercial, many of you are old enough to remember the commercial, where's the beef, (laughs) right? I want to ask you a question this morning before I read. Has it ever bothered you that there seems to be a discrepancy between What the Bible says we look like and what we really look like in our daily living. There was a time in my life where that discrepancy really bothered me. When I read the New Testament and I saw all of those good things that I'm supposed to be in Christ and realized that my life really didn't match up exactly the way I was reading. I looked at my life about 38 years ago and I was sitting in New Jersey on a park bench and it was pouring down rain and thinking this, hmm, I see the picture of what I'm supposed to look like. But I I don't look anything like the photograph. And I started praying, and I know we as believers know what we're supposed to look like, right? We're supposed to look like Christ. We're supposed to look like love and joy and and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness. And and there's always going to be a little discrepancy between who we are and what we look like this side of glory, right? But I started praying at that point, Lord, just, just change me. And he's, he's been changing me ever since. Is this just a glamour photo? Or is it what we really look like? 
Let me give you a couple of examples before we go to 2 Corinthians here. Uh, Here's a picture of what the Bible says of a believer in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 37. It says, in all things, and he is talking about the terrible things that can happen to a person in that text. In all things, all of the fears and all of the terrors in life, he said, and in all those things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's the only time in, in the Bible that that word appears in the New Testament, more than conquerors, and it means super conquerors. It means that we, we not only conquer, but we conquer in an overwhelming margin. And this is not a promise, this is a fact of, of, of our lives. He says we are more than conquerors, not we will be more than conquerors, but if you're in Christ, you are a super conqueror. Simply because Christ loved us and we are in Christ, what it means is we win in an overwhelming margin. And I think you would agree with me this morning that if every Christian believes that you would agree with me that that every christian believes that we are going to win in the end right we read the last chapter john's been in the last chapters and we win but i think sometimes we we think man it's it's going to be close <laughs> you know it's going to be the last quarter and <laughs> we're going to bring christ off the bench and he's going to hit a three pointer at the end, and we're going to win, but it's going to be close. You know, it's, it's getting bad, and it's going to be close. We don't know that if we're going to have to go to North Carolina to get a men's or ladies' bathroom. So in the end, it's, it's just going to be close. And it's going to be a barn burner, narrow victory. And folks, that is not what the Bible teaches. We win by a landslide. It's a slaughter. We are super conquerors in Christ. Well, I see your picture, but you don't look a thing like your photograph. Here's another one, John chapter 4 and verse 14. You don't need to turn there. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says to her, Whoever drinks of the water that you have will not never thirst again. Not never is pretty bad grammar, (laughs) but very good theology. A double negative. Whoever drinks of the water that I give them will not never thirst again. And yet everywhere you go, sometimes you find Christians who are thirsty. Living lives that are never satisfied. Seemingly filled with emptiness in their life. They're still searching for satisfaction other than the only place satisfaction comes from. And that's in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He who drinks of the water that I give will not never thirst again. I see your photograph. I, I see the picture. But there's times we don't look anything like it. Let me give you one more in First John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. The apostle says, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The victory. That overcomes the world, even our faith. And many read that passage and they say, you know what? I know what my problem is. If I just had more faith, I could overcome the world. But that's not what he's talking about. He goes on to say, who is he that overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
You see, we don't need more faith. It's the object of our faith that we need to focus on, right? And I could ask all of you this morning, if we took a a vote this morning, how how many of you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? All of us would raise our hand and say, Amen. Amen? How many of us have overcome the world? We might lose a few. Right? We might lose a few. And I want to share with you a passage this morning that had a huge impact on my life many years ago as an adult. And I believe the reason sometimes we do not look like our photograph as the Bible portrays us is because either we are ignorant of certain things uh, or of certain truths, or we know those truths and we fail to live by them. The scriptures gives us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, right? First Peter, Second Peter, one three, somewhere, somewhere there. Everything that we need. We don't need more truth. We need to start acting upon the truth that we know. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I just want to read verses 12 through 17, and this is going to be our text. There's a lot in this text. I'm particularly looking at verse 14, because that's what we want to focus on today. So focus on that as we go through, if I can get these bifocals to work. Verse 12, first of all, 2 Corinthians 2, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. To God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Great passage of scripture. A lot to dig into here, but I only want to focus on verse 12. What Paul is doing here, starting at verse 12, and all the way through chapter 6 and verse 11, he moves off his main thought as he's in 2 Corinthians and and starts speaking uh, from this time forward, defending and describing his apostleship. There were those who were wondering about his apostleship, and so he's addressing that issue in these early chapters of 2 Corinthians uh, as he goes on. So what he goes on to say in, in verse 14 or verse 14 of the text, thanks be to God, I'm going to read it again. If you mark your Bibles, this is a marker. This is a keeper. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Those words underline. Now, in that statement, Paul gives us a principle. He gives us a truth here, a key, whatever you want to call it, to our living victoriously the life that God has planned for his children. And he certainly does this in other places, but he does it here in a very special way. Now, those words leads us in his triumphal procession is really the translation of one Greek word, and that word is a technical term for a custom that was very common for the Roman armies of that day. And when Paul said those words in Corinthians here, those people of those that day would have immediately knew what he was talking about. And the application would have been obvious. 
But you and I today are far removed from the Roman times. We're far removed from the wars and and the commanding generals and everything else that was going on at that time. And so it's easy for us to miss what he is saying here. And he says the same thing again throughout his other writings. But here he uses an analogy that is very specific. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in his triumphal procession. That was a common custom in the Roman army. And when the Roman army went to wage war, as soon as they had won, they would immediately send out a runner or a herald. It's the word we get for preacher, right? And that herald would run ahead to announce to the city that the victory had been won. That could be miles away, right? They wouldn't have chosen me. If it's a half a marathon, it might have just ran a half a marathon in an an hour and 38 minutes or something like that. I can do that on my moped or my scooter. But you wouldn't choose me to do that running. But he would run as long as it needed to go to get that done. And he would announce to the city that the war has been won and we are victors. It's what preachers do, by the way. The victory's been won, amen? Amen. Preachers just shouting the word. The victory's been won. The commanding general is the winner. And we're on his side. Now, when they heard that good news, the city began to make preparation for what they called a triumphant processional. That's why I like the ESV in the translation of this. That's exactly what he says, that he's leading us in this triumphal procession. And as he goes on here, there was a certain incense that was going to be reserved for those special occasions. And that incense, once he had come back and said the victory was won, this incense would be burned in the temple. And it was a certain fragrance. And when people smelled that fragrance, they knew exactly what it meant. If you had been a citizen of Rome during that time and you had stepped out in the morning and breathed in some fresh air and you smelled that particular fragrance, you would know, hey, we are about to have a parade. We are about to have a party. We are about to have a huge celebration because the commanding general's coming back and the victory's been won. On that day when the conquering general, the conquering hero would return, the people would line up in the streets waiting for the appearance of their hero to come. And the procession would be led first by the priest who would be swinging these censers and and the incense that would be burning in front of the processional. Then there would be the musicians and others as well, but the main figure in all of this drama was the commanding general who would be coming in a chariot that was gold-plated, followed by white horses. He would follow the white horses in this gold chariot. And right behind the chariot and chained to it were the officers of the defeated army. And they had been put there in chains and and chained to the commander's chariot and dragged behind in humility and in the dust. Now these men would later be executed. They would later be taken and drawn to their death and, and all of the rank and file following them would have become slaves of the Roman people. They would have served them. But the main figure was the man sitting on the chariot. And when they saw him, they shouted and they threw garlands and they threw confetti in the air. And when they saw the officers that that he defeated that was chained to the chariot and being dragged behind, the, the crowd went absolutely wild. Showing the power of the commanding general to defeat this army. Now, that is the custom here that I want to talk about this morning a little bit that Paul is referring to when he says, thanks be to God who we are always following in his triumphal procession. 
who's leading us in his triumphal procession. There's basically three things I want to talk about this morning as, as we look at this text. And the first one is this. There was a time that you and I were at war with Christ. Is that true? Romans talks about it. We were once what? Enemies. We didn't know God. We didn't love God. We, we were enemies of God. There was a time when there, host, there was hostility between God and us, and Scripture talks about it, but the Lord Jesus has conquered us. He has conquered me. Amen? And when he conquered me, and what Paul is saying here is when he conquered me and saved me, Paul is saying, I have yielded to him in unconditional surrender, and he has put me in the chains of his lordship, and I am chained to his chariot. What a picture. And everywhere I go, Paul says, he is leading me in his triumph. Wow. The English Bible brings it out so well when it says, Thanks be to God who continually leads us about captives in his triumphal procession. Paul says, listen, I came to Jesus Christ. He overcame me on the road to Damascus, right? In Acts, we read about it. And, and he overcame me on the road to Damascus. And Paul knows, he says, he blinded me. He knocked me off my high horse, so to speak, right? And when I realized what happened to me, the Apostle Paul says, I yielded to him in unconditional surrender, and he placed my hands in the chains of his lordship, and he chained me to his chariot, and now he says, thanks be to God everywhere where I am being led in his triumphal procession. You see, Paul wanted everybody to know he's defending his apostleship here. People are questioning his apostleship, and he wanted everybody to know the details of this in his apostleship because when you get to chapter 4, he starts talking about the bad things that happened to him. Chapter 4, verses 7 and following, and what he is saying is, as he talks about those bad things, he's thinking, well, some of you might think of these circumstances that I'm going through and think, wow, that, that's a failure, Paul. That's defeat. But Paul is saying this, I want you to know right up front, at the offset, that thanks be to God, because everywhere I go, it might look like defeat to you. It might look like failure to you. But everywhere I go, I'm simply chained to his chariot, and I'm following in his triumph. You see, we go through all kinds of trials. We go through all kinds of difficulties, and, and some would say, well, God is, is punishing me. Maybe he's putting himself on display. I think that's exactly what he does. He puts himself on display in difficult times. See, because it's not about us. It's about him, isn't it? It's about his victory. And I'm just thankful he chose me. And he conquered me. And I'm very happy to be chained to his chariot. Now here's the second point of the principle. At one time we were enemies of his. The second point of the principle is this. If you want to be a conqueror, you first must be conquered, right? If you want to be a conqueror, you first must be conquered. And, and we could come, if we were to come and interview the Apostle Paul and ask him, Paul, is it, how is it that you can say, everywhere I go, there is victory? The Apostle Paul would say, it's because I've been conquered by Jesus Christ, I'm simply chained to his chariot, following along in the wake of his victory. If you want to be a conqueror, you first must be conquered. 
I am, cruci- he, he, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not what? Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I've been conquered. If you want to be an overcomer, you first must be overcome. If you want to be a master, you first must be mastered. If you want to exercise authority, you first must submit to authority, right? And that's exactly, folks, what we don't always want to do. <laughs> I counsel people and have counseled people throughout uh, my life. And what I find is, is that the bottom line problem that they have is it often comes down to, I know what the Bible says, Dathan. They just don't like the idea of being conquered. They just don't like the idea of being conquered by anyone, even God. Because when someone says to me, I know what the Bible says, but this is what I'm going to do, they are placing themselves in the position of God. And folks, there is a God. You're not Him. Right? Let's make no bones about it. What they're saying in that is, I really don't like the idea of this picture, Dathan. I, I don't like this picture of being chained to a chariot. If you could take that image out of the message, Dathan, that would be a really good message. But, but I just don't like that image. Well, let me say to you folks, that is the sermon. <laughs> and, and I can't change it and make it more palatable for you. If you take that picture out of the text of what Paul is saying, you lose the message that he's trying to bring across. You say, well, Dave, isn't that kind of humiliating? Isn't that kind of humbling? Isn't that kind of degrading? And yes, it is. It's humiliating and degrading. And if it brings more glory to God, all of us ought to be willing to look that way, right? You see, we don't want to be chained on the back of the chariot Because most of us would be rather riding up front, driving most of the time. You say, God is my co-pilot. Really? No, no, no. This picture, God is not your co-pilot. He's the pilot. You're on the back wing holding on. You're chained on, flapping in the wind. And you ought to be thankful that you're chained and he'll never let you go. Never. Is that mom's mom had a my mother got an honorary doctorate last week. That was a classic. <laughs> but it was great, you know, the kids are there, half the kids traveled halfway across the country to see it and, and the grandkids are there. And we had a great time. And this guy gave a message and, and he talked about young people. And what is it gonna take for our young people to stay in church after they leave home? They give the statistic that, you know, 70-some percent of young people leave the church after high school never to return. So he gives this message about what are we going to have to do here? And he gave four things. And he missed the main thing. He goes to tell you something. If a kid never comes back to church after he left the church, it's not because you did this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. It's because he's never been chained to the chariot. He's lost. I'm not saying they'll go through a time where they'll go away and they'll rebel. All of us go through difficulty. But listen, if my saved kid doesn't come back to church, he's had a profession but no possession. Because God's people come to church. God's people are committed There's nothing they can do about it because he chained me to his chariot. He'll never let me go. Sometimes we want to lead. And sometimes say, Lord, you know, we're going a little bit slow here. You know, everybody's passing us up. And I've been waiting a long time for this and knowing what God's will is. And, you know, let, let's speed this thing up a little bit. Or, or someone say, you know, oftentimes we complain, so Lord, why did you take this road? Because it's bumpy. It's got potholes in it. It's in New York, for heaven's sake. You know, so we got all this stuff going on. And this is depressing. Can't we move along here? 
Can we pull off the road for five or six years and have a picnic? You see, you see, we like to drive. We like to be in control. We like that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. If you have one of them, rip it off your car. It is so theologically incorrect. Because God is my pilot. Paul says, no, if you want to be a conqueror, you first must be conquered. You need to realize that you will only experience as much victory in Jesus as Jesus is experiencing victory in you. And if there's areas of repeated, repeated, repeated failure in your life, it's a sure sign of the fact that there are some areas of your life where simply Jesus Christ is not Lord. We're talking about lordship here, right? And Paul is saying, listen, folks, I'm committed to this right up front. Here's my authority. Here's my authority for being apostle. He knocked me off my high horse. He chained me to my chariot. No matter what I'm going through, no matter what it looks like to you, I'm following in his triumph. His That's why we sing all to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. You know, I was in Bible school and you have kids get up there and they're young Bible school students and ninth, you know, in the, in the freshman year and they're giving their testimony. And they're talking about everything I left. You know, I left this, I could have had a job here, and I left this and this, and then, you know, and they talk about their former life as, a, as an unbeliever, and I had all kinds of excitement, I partied, and I had this girl, and I had that girl, and I had all the money and the things that I got, and uh, then I got saved. <laughs> and God called me to Bible school. And pray for me. <laughs> I, I want to tell you, folks, that's pathetic. We left nothing. We left nothing to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we're chained to his chariot. We're victors in the end. Now, in closing, I want to... Closing is a relative term. <laughs> Because I'm only on page 6 of 11. Um, But seriously, in closing, I want to talk about three things about victory. Three things about victory. And, And it's very evident here that this victory is God's victory through his son. Right? He leads me forth in his triumph. His victory. Well, what are you saying, Dathan? I'm saying the responsibility for victory in the Christian life is God's, not ours. The responsibility for for victory in the Christian life is God's, not ours. Now, I know we use that phrase. I'm really trying to get victory over this. I'm not going to fuss with you about that when you say it. I've got to overcome this temptation. I've got to overcome the devil. Listen, in a very real sense, there are no victories to be won because Jesus Christ won the victory on the cross 2,000 years ago when he said, it is finished. The victory's been won. And the truth of the matter is every temptation that you and I will face tomorrow has already been overcome by Jesus Christ. The responsibility for victory is his, not ours. Because he told us there is no temptation taking you. It's all common to man. Well, everybody, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand my temptations and my difficulties. No, there is no temptation taking you, but such is common to everyone else in the room. Look at the people next to you. They're pathetic. (laughs) 
They, they have temptations and difficulties just like you. You're not unique. They're common to everybody. You just don't understand, Pastor. You've never had problems. I have eight kids. I won't even go there. The truth of the matter is every temptation we face has already been won. And most people, most Christians at times feel this way, you know, man, I did, I did bed yesterday and, and I'm going to do better today and, and I'm going to climb out of bed and say, I'm going to do it right today and I'm going to, I'm going to get the victory over this and I'm going to win this victory if it kills me and, and it usually does by the end of the day. I love the story of, of David and Goliath. We heard about David this morning in, in Sunday school class and his temptation and, and whatever bucket he was in and whatever Charlie's teaching. And David, when he was younger, David and Goliath, David is sent by his father to bring lunch to his brothers at the front line. Do you ever think about that? Your little brother comes along and you're out there in the battle looking at Goliath, looking at all the enemy on the other side, and your real younger brother comes up and says, here's lunch. Dad wanted me to send you lunch. <laughs> okay, David, go back home, feed the sheep, <laughs> you know, do your thing. And David looks out there, and he sees the enemy over there, and nobody doing it. He says, why don't we go over there and, and take this enemy over? No, 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 we can't do it that way. David says, I, I'd like to do it. I'm sure his brothers are thinking, well, here's, here's the armor. It was nice knowing you. So David prances out there to Goliath, looking straight into his kneecap. And David sees these armies defying his God. You remember what David said to Goliath? He said, the battle is the Lord's. And he, God, has delivered you, Goliath, into his hands. You see, the battle wasn't David's. He, he knew enough to know it would be a God thing to take down Goliath. He knew it wasn't Israel's battle. They're hiding in the bushes over there. The battle is the Lord's, isn't it? And we need to learn to stand in front of the giants of our day and say, listen, the battle is the Lord's and he has delivered you into his hands. You know, sometimes in, in churches, we have the habit of calling a church by the pastor's name. Well, that's Brother Corbett's church or that's, that's Brother Prince's church. Well, that's so-and-so's church. Now, we know that it's not our church, but you know, if you've been at a place long enough, you start thinking in your mind that, well, it is kind of my church. You know, the pastor, they, they just have all this responsibility. And all those people out there, you've got to take care of them, and when they hurt, you've got to heal them, and when they're angry, you've got to calm them down. And I've got to make sure that we have more in Sunday school next year than this year. It doesn't look good at all on the annual report. And we're behind in our plan for this, and things aren't going very well over here. And, and pastors at times take all of this on, thinking this is my church, and I've got to fix this. It's a lot of pressure. And that's why many of them don't stay. A lot of pressure. It was liberating to me... Years ago, when it came to Matthew 16, and Jesus said this, upon this rock I'll build the church. I'm like, Lord, you're going to build it? That's great, because I can't do it. He says he'll build the church. You see, it's not the elder's responsibility to get people to walk down the aisle to join the church. 
It's not the elders' responsibility to get people to give to the church. It's not the elders' responsibility to get people saved. That's God's responsibility, right? He says, I'll build the church. It's my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, the elders have a responsibility, and we'll get to that in a moment, but building the church is not one of them. First of all, this is God's victory through his son. Secondly, about victory, this victory becomes ours through submission. The victory becomes ours through submission. This is where the responsibility comes in. What is it? How do we enter into this victory? It's simply by staying chained to the chariot. But I'm afraid sometimes there's many Christians that try to pick the lock on the chains. You know, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You're a piece of meat on the altar. But there's all of us here probably at times that probably slid off for a time, right? And we'll say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to rededicate my life to the Lord. Well, you're his. I don't know that it's rededication as much as it is returning stolen property. (laughs) Right? Because he bought you with a price. You're his. You're chained. In any time period you've taken it upon yourself, you've you've kind of stolen his property. And if you're really a child of his, that ain't going to happen very long. He's going to bring you back. If you're a child of his, he's going to bring you back. See, my daily responsibility is that I'm living under the authority and under his lordship and chained to his chariot. You say, well, that sounds easy. If you don't pay your taxes, you don't know what I'm talking about. If you don't lead as a husband, if you're not the father to your children, if you're not following the principles of his word, you do not know what I'm talking about when I say chain to the chariot. Because all of that is hard work. That's my responsibility, isn't it? Come under his authority. This is what the word says. So I know what the Bible says. If I'm chained, I'm using the word and. Not but. I know what the Bible says, and that's what I'm going to do. Not I know what the Bible says, but I think I know better. You're nowhere near the chains. Elders are often misunderstood as to their responsibility to the church. Well, you don't do much, Pastor. You preach once a week. Spend a lot of time with your family. You get to do all the things I can't do. I was at a seminar and a pastor talked about uh, a question that was asked of a pastor. The question was this, to whom is your primary responsibility as pastor to the church? And the pastor said this, it's to me. It sounded a little egotistical. And this pastor said, you want to know uh, who my primary responsibility is? He says, it's to me. And he said, let me explain. My number one priority responsibility as a pastor is not to the loss of the community. My number one priority as a pastor of this church is not to the members of this church. He said, the number one priority as a pastor is to me, to make certain that I am living filled with the Holy Spirit. Under the submission and lordship of Christ, what he was saying is, my number one responsibility is to stay chained to the chariot. Because you see, when a pastor is filled with the Spirit and living under the lordship of Christ, then the loss of the community and the members of this church will be ministered to out of the overflow of his life. 
If you go on and read chapter 4, we don't have time to do that this morning, it makes it very clear that these officers who were chained to the chariot are being led to their death. And that's why Paul starts talking about that a little bit. Thanks be to God who always leads me in his triumph. That's leading to his death. And in chapter 4, he details that out a little bit. Look at chapter 4 just quick. What time are we done? <clears throat> when I get done, that's not good. Look at, look at chapter 4 of the same book. But we have an earth and treasure in jars of clay, verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 here, but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Toward the end, verse 16, so then we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond our comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. And then he gets into chapter 5, where we know that if a tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. If this tent goes down, I'm a part of the building of God. Then he goes on later in the same chapter, say, to be absent from the body is to what? To be present with the Lord. And so Paul says, I make it my goal, I make it my aim, in verses 8 through 10, to be accepted of him. I live my life, not based upon what everyone else thinks I ought to be doing. He says, I live my life based upon what God thinks I ought to be doing. Because in verse 10 of chapter 5, he says, I'm going to give an account to that God who's riding in the chariot that I'm chained to. Which leads us to the last point in victory. The victory remains ours in any situation and in any place. Thanks be to God everywhere. Always, he says. He uses always. He uses the word everywhere. So always, anytime, everywhere, any place, I can have the victory in Jesus Christ. You and I can learn how to live chained to the chariot. There's no conceivable place where God cannot give us the victory. And I don't know that I've learned all of that yet. I'm a work in progress, are you? (laughs) Because we get in them places. And we start thinking all kinds of things. But if we're living under his lordship, I have to admit several things about all life situations. One of them is this. He led me to it. There's no other way possible for that to be true if I'm chained to his chariot that he didn't lead me to it. The second thing is he's already overcome it. And so I can trust him. I can lean on him. I can trust him through the most difficult times because I'm chained to his chariot. He led me here and he's going to see me through it. Victory. And what I'm saying is we are walking on conquered ground. (laughs) Victory doesn't always lead us to dry ground. Sometimes the water starts rising and it's up to our ankles and we say, praise God, hallelujah. It's up to our knees and praise God. It's up to our waist now and we're thinking, you are, you are going to help me through this, right, Lord? And it's up to our neck and we're thinking, he's going to kill me. Victory is staying chained to the chariot 
no matter where it leads. When the water's rising, when it seems like I am sinking, Peter was there, right? Lord, save me. It's during those times that we really start thinking, Lord, beam me up. Uh, This would be a good time for you to take me home. You know what? He hasn't promised to beam us up, but he has promised to be with us through the rough waters and to take us all the way to the other side. All the way to the other side, even if it's on heaven's shores where we wake up. And for you and for me, that, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> you see, we deserve to be executed. So surgery. I was with John before he went into surgery. And he said, you know, God is good. And he says, you know, if I don't wake up tomorrow, God is good. Next morning, talk to John again after surgery. He's like, that's the best night's sleep I've ever got. <laughs> is that right, Joe? Joe and I were there. He said, I haven't slept that good in a long time. I said, John, you're on drugs. <laughs> Later on, he says to me, Dathan, he said, you know what, Dathan? I don't know what's going to happen, but I may get to heaven before you do. He said, and that's all right. Next week, I was uh, 160 over 99 with my blood pressure. I'm thinking maybe he won't get to heaven before I do. (laughs) But I want to tell you something about John that you probably uh, already know. But it was never more clear to me than in the past couple of weeks. Um, I've known John a long time. John was my RA in college. And he would come to me and say, Dathan, you have got to clean that room or I am going to give you an infraction. Then he started dating my sister. And he would say, Dathan, would you please clean your room? And he's been a close friend ever since. <laughs> well, I want to tell you about something about John and about Sola. Chained. He's chained. He'll never be let go. Never. I see your picture. And it's great to have the Apostle Paul who exemplified the photograph of Christianity in difficult times. And I've never seen it clearer in the last two weeks than to watch my brother-in-law and my sister knowing God is good. We're on the victor side, folks. God is showing himself on display. And I'm having to evaluate my own heart. And I trust you're evaluating your own and thinking, I'm probably not there yet. Thanks be to God who leads me in his triumphal procession, always and everywhere, always and everywhere.